We are in our second week of a sermon series on the Apostles' Creed called I Believe. And so I just want to give you a little introduction. But as I get into that, uh, just know we'll be in Genesis chapter 1, the very first page of your Bible, uh, but, or in, in another place as well in Matthew chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles, we'll be in those two spots a little bit today. We'll also have it on the screen as a matter of convenience, but it's good for you to see it. Last week, we began this series on the Apostles' Creed by introducing the importance importance of, of why, why we say the creed, what does the creed mean, why is it something that we should study and embrace uh, this summer and learn more about. We uh, talked about the fact that you'd have to go back to the first, second century, the very early church to, to find the, the beginnings of this creed, that for folks that would become Christian and join the church, they might spend an entire year in catechism, in Christian education, learning about the different parts of this creed. And when they were were led into the waters of baptism, they would profess, they would confess, they would say out loud these statements that now have been formalized into the Apostles' Creed that we have. They would say out loud, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And then they would be submerged in water and raised to life. And they would say, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. And they would be submerged and raised up in life. And they would say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the, the church and the communion of saints that be submerged and brought and raised in life. This was part of the process. This was the confession and the profession of faith that would take place. And, and we introduced to why, why is the creed important for us now? 2,000 years later, why do we need to study it? And so I won't re-preach last week's sermon, but I do want you to see this as we move forward. Three, three reasons why the Apostles' Creed is important. First, what we believe is important. Okay, what we hold to together is important. Y'all, Christianity has boundaries in it that if we cross those boundaries, it's no longer Christianity. So there are some non-negotiable tenets that we hold to in our faith that are important. What we believe, what we teach, what we raise our children up in, what we are discipled in, it matters. And so the creed is one of these parts of our faith that outlines the faith in a really important way. Secondly, it's biblical. Uh, we are looking at the revelation of God in scripture. When we look at the creed, we are seeing the faith of the apostles of the New Testament writers. This is out of the Bible. And so each week as we talk about different parts, we are showing in scripture how this has been the testimony of God's revelation in scripture. And third, it teaches, it anchors, and it directs. It holds us to what we are to believe. It teaches us what we are to believe and it directs our worship. So we gather here in this space it, it helps us to now see what does it mean when we sing out what a powerful name, what a beautiful name. What does that mean? Well, when we are singing to the God of this creed, it now is direct, it directed and shaped our worship. So today, that was all last week. Today, we're gonna get in the first line. Last week, I was gonna try and do all of that together. You're welcome, I didn't. So you got out at a decent time last week. Uh, but today, we're gonna talk about the first line of the creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. So let's look at scripture. Genesis 1, verse 1 and 2. Hear the word of the Lord. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And turn to Matthew chapter 7. We'll be reading verses 9 through 11. 
Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Let us pray. God, we give you thanks again for your presence here in this space, and I pray that you would add your blessing to the reading of this scripture, your holy word. Where we are empty, would you fill us? Where we are weak, would you strengthen us? Where we are wrong, would you correct us? And would you send us out once more? And God, I pray for myself that you'd speak through me or in spite of me, but may it be your message that's delivered. We love you and trust you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Let all God's people say, amen. Last night, I went over to a friend's house uh, who smoked a brisket. Um, I just like a moth to a flame, smoked meat will draw me in. And I was over there and my friend said, preacher, what are you preaching on tomorrow? And my response was, God, and he thought I was messing with him or being a smart aleck. But really, what we're talking about is God here. That's a big topic. This first line of the creed starts us off in this expansive big way. It reminds me of uh, years ago when I first came to know Christ, I was at a party and uh, dealing with friends, seeing this change that was happening in me. And I remember a friend going, all right, John Wayne, why don't you tell me about God? And I just remember going, uh, what do you want to, I don't, where do you want to start? Like, I don't even know. I'm still learning. And this is an expansive topic. How do we gather together and in 20, 30 minutes talk about God, the maker of heaven and earth? How do we do that? How do we cover that? How do we bring that out of this uh, and, and study that and worship together? Well, there's two ideas that I want us to kind of hang our hat on today of what we're introduced in the creed. And what we see in these first few words are just this two ideas that are juxtaposed together that I think are powerful for us. It is when we call God Father Almighty. What we see in just two words hanging together next to each other is infinite power and intimate personal relationship. Infinitely powerful and intimately personal. Those are the two ideas as Josh introduced you in that song. That's what we see right here in the first line of the creed. These two ideas put together mean something quite amazing for us. That's why in the Lord's prayer, when they ask the disciples, how do we pray? Jesus says, I want you to pray this way. Our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That is intimately personal, our Father, but it is infinitely powerful, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It is other, it is holy, it is beyond words, it is beyond understanding. And these two ideas in our Christian faith held together are something that we see consistently over and over and over again. This first line, our Father, we believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, is the introduction to the whole creed. And what's unique about this statement is it's about God, but it's about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as well. It introduces us to a creed that's built around the three persons of the Trinity. And if your head cramps when you think about three persons, one God, it does mine too. But in the coming weeks, we're going to wrestle with this nuance. We're going to wrestle on what it 
it means to believe in the three in one God. But today we talk about all that God has done and the person of the Father in the Trinity as well. So let's look at these two things, infinitely powerful, intimately personal, and then how those things will fit together. So if you're type A and you need an outline, you can breathe out deeply, that's where we're going. Infinitely powerful, intimately personal, and how, why those things belong together. So let's look at Genesis 1-1 for infinitely powerful. We go back to creation for this. Genesis, likely written by Moses, or maybe somebody in Moses's camp, somebody around Moses writing these first five books of the Bible, many years after creation would come to be. One of the, my favorite analogies of describing when and what this is like when we look at Genesis one and two is pretend that Moses is an old, old man and he's gathered with the, his people and multi-generations are there and his great-grandson at a camp fire that night says, Grandpa Moses, how did we get here? And what Moses begins to tell is this narrative, this beautiful story, this poetic imagery that we find in Genesis 1 and 2. Y'all, Genesis is not meant to describe in detail exactly how God created, but Genesis 1 and 2 is the declaration to the world that God created that out of chaos was brought order by our God, Yahweh, that we know and believe, by the one who has taken Moses and his people and made them a people, by the one who will continue to guide and steward and reveal himself over generations, over generations, all the way up to where we are here. And listen, I know that you've been inoculated with years of hearing Genesis 1 and 2, or maybe you haven't, and this is the first time, but Vacation Bible School or children's books have shown us the garden and how all of these came to be. But listen, sometimes when we go through these stories over and over again, they get flattened and we miss the power of what is happening. When you read Genesis 1 and 2, it should bring awe to you. It should bring worship to you. It should open your eyes to the infinitely powerful God that spoke over chaos and brought order, that said, let there be oceans and mountains, let there be flocks of birds and beasts, let there be people and formed us out of dust. Y'all, God's power is in everything. God is not simply a solution to the problems in this world, but the reason that there is a world at all. That's our God. And all throughout the Bible and history, there is this idea that the name of God even is to be revered and believed. Did you know that early Jewish believers, early Israelites would not even say his name or write Yahweh in their scriptures because they were in fear of taking his name in vain and misusing it. That's that kind of respect. And so if you read old Hebrew texts where Yahweh should be, it would be replaced by Adonai, which is another word for Lord. They didn't wanna use his proper name. So they used a different name because they didn't wanna mess this up. That's a holy reverence for a holy God. By the way, do you know the commandment in the Old Testament to not take the Lord's name in vain has nothing to do with cussing? Do you know that? I grew up believing that, like don't. Don't say GD, right? You know what I'm saying? Don't, don't do that. You're taking the Lord's name in vain. Do you know what they believe, what early Jewish thought and what Christian thought is about this? Taking the Lord's name in vain is ascribing things that don't belong to God to God. 
misusing his name and his glory, misrepresenting who he is to the world, that's taking the Lord's name in vain. So if you walk out of here and don't cuss a lick, good for you. But if you live a life that is misrepresenting God in the world, that is taking his name in vain. We are called to have a healthy fear. The Bible talks about a fear or an awe, a respect for the one who spoke creation into being. Let me give you an example. It's a silly one, but a few weeks ago, I'm in a doctorate program right now, and a few weeks ago, I got to this part uh, called my candidacy review. And so the way this doctorate works is uh, you spend a year and a half doing all this research, and then you put together like most of the thesis, and then you defend your work in front of a lot of really smart people. And so now, because of COVID and stuff like that, that was on a Zoom call, which is somehow even more intimidating. Uh, And so I get on this Zoom call, and there's all of these PhDs, these people that have written the book that I'm trying to like quote in my thesis, right? That I'm working with. And, and I just remember being so intimidated. I sweat through two shirts and a jacket sitting in an air-conditioned office. And, and there was this healthy fear. I was just like waiting for a question to come because in that moment, I felt my inadequacy. I felt that I just don't measure up to these people that are the experts in their field. This is a silly example, but when we stand before a holy God, God, we immediately see how different we are from God himself. When you see in scripture, people encounter the holy God, go into the throne room. What do they always say? I'm dead. Like I'm dead. I I can't even be in this room. I can't even be next to you. Infinitely powerful. This is the testimony of our God. And I just wonder if some of us need to have a little more awe and respect for the living God that we need to have a little more reverence when we talk about God, that we have a little more expectation when we gather in here and when we sing these songs or when we come to this table and we break this meal that we are gathering, in fact, in the community with the one who created you from dust. That should bring to our minds a whole nother level of respect. That we need to have a healthy awe for the gospel that this living God, this God created and brought life into the world out of nothing, invited us to be co-laborers in the world. And when we couldn't and we separated ourselves from God, God came himself to be the representative that we couldn't be. And the kingdom of God was inaugurated in Jesus Christ. That's why when you walk with Jesus, you see Jesus bringing heaven literally into the world. So everywhere he goes, he touches and brings life. He tells dead people, not to be dead anymore. He tells sick people to be well. He casts out demons. He brings healing. He brings people together. This is the kingdom of God breaking in. And that kingdom of God is already in place, but not yet fully consummated. It's being continued through the people of God so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we might go in the world and be pockets of heaven everywhere we go. But that's not it. That's not all the good news. Then Christ will return. And we see a picture in Revelation that when he shows up, the battle is over. There is no more death. There is no more pain. There is no more evil. There is no more chaos. There is only justice. There is only peace. There is only love. Revelation tells us that the lion will lay down with the lamb, that God will tell death to knock it off. That's the gospel message. And it should invoke fear and worship. It should invoke desperation in us to desperately want to be a part of it. 
because he is infinitely powerful. And this infinitely powerful God desires to be in relationship with you because he's also intimately personal. There's been this movement over decades, really, to drop the name Father from the Trinitarian three-in-one understanding for a lot of reasons. Some of them I, I understand. One, when we talk about God as Father, we, we, it can be confusing. We see like a bearded man sitting on a throne somewhere else, right? And so people have wanted to get rid of this title of Father or um, it can cause, it, it causes all kind of like patriarchal issues, right? When we, we got people believing that God really is a male, right? Like there's a lot of issues around this. Or um, some of us struggle with the idea of father because we didn't have good fathers. And so we project that onto this idea of God. And so there's been this movement to call the father, the creator. And here's the issue. That's what he did. It's not who he is. And through the revelation that God has given us in Jesus Christ and in his scripture, it tells us who he is, is best understood as father. And I know that we bring a lot of baggage into that relationship. We're gonna wrestle with that. But what I want you to know today is God's character revealed as father. But see, God's character has within it the necessity of relationship. He's not father without kids. And he created us from the very beginning to be in relationship with him. So look at Matthew text again. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? I want you to see three things when we talk about intimately personal here from Matthew 7. One, the father is present. The father gives gifts and the father gives good gifts. So what does it mean that the father is present? Well, some of us have grown up with distant fathers or distant parents, and we cannot help but project that upon God. But one of the underlying things found here and throughout scripture is God is not just some distant faraway God that he is intimately at work in our lives and he's intimately at work in our fellowship and in our community and in our world. First John puts it this way. This is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. I used to read that and go, that's not very satisfying. I don't want you to hear me. I want you to answer that prayer. But listen, I'm thankful that he doesn't answer some of my prayers. And just to know that the creator of the universe hears us is an important word for us. What else does it mean that God is present, that the Father is present in our lives? Well, listen, let me ruffle your feathers for just a second. This intimately personal Father is a Father of love and discipline. He's an active Father in our lives. I hear this all the time around the church and around faith. Well, I just don't believe in a God who would do that or I don't believe in a God who would judge, or I don't believe in a God that would come down and do something like that. Listen, love without discipline is another kind of absenteeism. Do you hear that? Love without discipline is another kind of an absent father. It is. If all we do is just give to our kids whatever they want because we want them to like not like, like, not, not like us, right? To love us a little bit more, then that is just another form of really not being present. 
And our God loves us well with love and discipline. And discipline is really wrapped up into this idea of love. This present father knows what you are struggling with, knows the sin that you are plagued by, knows all of this and has come so that evil and sin will be broken. This father will not enable and will not turn away from your brokenness. And at that point you should say, amen. Right, Because he, he won't look at the things that are weighing down, the things that you're struggling with, the things that you need healing from, the things that are, that are plaguing who you were called to be and go, eh, work it out. That's not who our father is to be present, is to love and every part of that word love, which includes calling us away from those things that are killing us. Those things that are getting in the way of intimate relationship with him and relationship with those around us. It is good and loving for God to discipline his children. And listen, in my weakness, there are times that I discipline my kids because they've inconvenienced me. Let's just be honest. I had some plans, they messed it up. And sometimes I tell them, come on, right? Or sometimes in my weakness, I will discipline because they haven't listened to me or given me respect. And I don't mean it that way. I don't like mean to do it. But, but what I want you to hear today is God's discipline is never petty or self-needing. It's never just because he needs you to respect him. That's not what this is about. It is not a hedonistic God that's like, behave me because I could smash you as fast as I created you. God's discipline is about helping you to be who you were created to be. To find the fullness of what it means to be one of God's children to know healing, to know love and joy and peace. So I want you to see that a present God is sometimes a God not like we would design, right? But one that loves us fully and loves us well. Secondly, we see in Matthew 7, the father gives gifts. This father gives gifts. Even dads who are broken don't give a snake when a child asks for bread or fish. God is present and he gives gifts. This father is the giver of life. This father is the one who sustains our life even now. This father has invited you into being co-creators in the world. This father has provided all that we have. This father has provided us with Mexican food. Amen? Like he has provided that when we have a tortilla and fajita beef put together in cheese and sour cream, y'all, I know, I know you're hungry. We'll get you out of here soon. Guacamole, thank you, that we might know him, right? That we might worship him in all that we do. He could have continued to give us manna, right? But he's given us fajitas, our new man manna. All that we do should point us to him because he is the father who has given us gifts. But also I want you to see the father gives good gifts, specifically good gifts. Intimately personal father gives what is needed, not what you want. Notice in Matthew that the petition is for bread. In the Lord's prayer, Jesus teaches us to ask for our daily bread. This would be a different scripture altogether if the story was, which of you, if your son asks for a Lamborghini, will give up, right? That changes the nature of this text. It's about what is needed. And we know this, right? Like, thank God he doesn't give us what we want all the time. Come on, church, freshman year in college, if I got what I wanted, things would be different, right? I would not be here with you, right? It would be a whole lot more different. He doesn't give us what we want. He gives us what we need. God's intentions in this life are not to make sure that you're happy. 
They're not. That has never been the bottom line. That would be a much different world. But God's intentions have always to be in relationship with you and to create a world where his characteristics of love and justice and peace and mercy and joy would be prevalent and abundant in the world. And so Father gives specifically good gifts. So how do these come together and why is it important? Why does the creed say God the Father Almighty? We've talked about each one of these, but why is it so important that they're together? These two crashing into each other in the creed and in the greater witness of God. Well, let me tell you a story. This week, I had to dethatch my yard. Anybody ever dethatched a yard? I don't recommend it. So my yard's like a year old and it's dying. And I, I don't know how to keep anything alive that grows like this anyways. And so I'm struggling. I have someone come out and they're like, you've got fungus and root rot. And you need to dethatch it. And it's this thing that cuts out all the bottom layers. And anyway, so I rent this thing from Sunbelt Rentals and drive it home. Luke comes with me. We load it. It's massive. It looks like a mower, but it's very heavy, really big. So they helped me load it my truck. And we get to the house and um, I told Luke, we got to wait until my neighbor comes over and helps me get it out because I can't get it out. Uh, by myself. I can't lift this thing. And Luke looks at me and he goes, dad, but you're the strongest. And I'm like, yeah, son, I am. Let's, let's go give this a shot. I love that he said that about me, right? It filled me up. It filled my cup. But here's the thing. There is a day when he is going to learn that I am not the strongest. That in many ways, I'm a pretty weak man but I want him to know the Father Almighty who is never deficient in that way, who is never impatient, who is never lacking in love, who is never lacking in grace and mercy. I don't know where you stand today. Like, I don't know what your dad baggage is that we carry in the room. Some of us had that dad that we just didn't want to mess up around, that we had to walk on eggshells and we tried to earn their affirmation all the time. Some of us have had other experiences of distant parents or still worse, something abusive. But what I want you to see here is that is a sign of sin and brokenness in the world. It is not a projection of who Father Almighty is. It is, not, it is not pointing to who God is with what we've experienced in these ways. And this creed gives us a healthy symmetry that should challenge everyone in the room. And I ask you today, do you know the infinitely powerful one and the intimately personal Father? Because there's two traps that I see happen in the church all the time and it's swinging from one side to the other and missing the other side. The first one is we see that God is distant. God wound this thing up in the world and kind of set it into motion. Like we believe in a higher power, but we don't really believe that God interacts with this world much. There are people in my family that would call this, I'm spiritual, right? And so we don't really believe that God is around. So what does that mean? We don't pray much because we don't believe that God is interacting with our world. We may not sing when we come to church. We may not interact in these things. We definitely don't prioritize our calendar around this thing called church and the community of the church because we function like God is not present at all in our life. And we don't wake up in the morning and go, yeah, that's me, but we function like that in our lives. And we wake up 10, 20, 30, 40 years later and we realize that we have operated like God's never been in the picture. We've kept him at an arm's distance. And y'all, this isn't Christian, this is deism. 
This idea that there's just some higher being that created something, that is not faith in the Christian God, the one who has created us in his image. That is not the same thing. And so what we desperately need if we're in that place is to know the one who is intimately personal in your life. The one who wants you to know healing, the one who wants you to know reconciliation, the one who wants you to know that he hears your prayers. The other side of it is this, God is just my friend. Like Jesus is my homeboy. Have you seen those shirts? The God of love and the God of grace. And you might hear this and you think, what's wrong with all of this? Well, a couple of things. When things go wrong and you don't get what you want, your faith falls apart because it was built on a facade that he was just here to make us happy. Or worse, you walk in sin and justify it. God, y'all, is not purely therapeutic. He's not here just to make us happy. That's not our existence in this world. It's something bigger than that. He is the one who came and died on a cross to face evil and brokenness in your life and in this world. And so some of us need to turn to Job and hear Job question God and God say, where were you when I hung everything? Where were you when I separated the waters? Where were you? That's the word that we might need to hear today. Listen, let me close with this. My daughter, Riley, uh, she's 21 months and she just recently decided to like me. Uh, it, it took a while to get here, but it is a wonderful feeling that sometimes, sometimes she prefers me uh, when I'm in the room. Yeah, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. I've worked hard for it. Y'all, I've never really known a love like this. Like I was terrified of having a daughter and, and I just wanna say what I'm starting to realize right now is this love, I didn't know it existed in me, right? I would go to prison for that little girl, right? I would, not because I'd want to do that, that sounds awful, but I will do anything that I can to provide what she needs, right? Undoubtedly, I would try. And when she calls my name, it doesn't matter what is going on. There I'll be, I'll be available for her. Will I protect her from evil and suffering in the world? Absolutely, to the best of my ability. But I'm weak, I'm broken, I'm still in process, I'm inconsistent. I'm unknowingly selfish at the end of a long day. My love is not bottomless, especially when I've been separated from the love of God. But there is a father who is all powerful, all knowing, all sufficient, always present. There is a father that leaps if she will just call his name. There is a father who loves her more than I could ever imagine. And this father has a word for evil in the world, has a word for death in the world, has a word for cancer, has a word for any suffering that my sweet girl will face in this life. This father can bring life and can bring healing and can bring redemption. This father is almighty, infinitely powerful, intimately personal. And I want her to know him. And I want us to know him. In the name of the father and of the son and the Holy Spirit, let all God's people say, amen.